electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, market drama on the heels of comments from Fed Chair Powell, a taper, turbo taper, transitory or not. If you ask me about transitory one more time, I'm going to come at, you know, it's just like enough with the transitory. Thank you, Joe. Well, almost enough with the T words. More Fed talk with Lazard's Peter Orzag. Let me be a, a bit of an outlier. I actually think Jay Powell is doing a great job. Plus, Merck's COVID pill endorsed by the FDA. The former commissioner joins us, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. A lot of the people who are vulnerable and immunocompromised have basically become prisoners in their home. This drug could be providing a measure of protection and confidence to allow many individuals to live a more normal life. It's Wednesday. It's December 1st. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue, please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And we're going to start with yesterday's sell-off because it was a, a biggie. The Dow tumbled by 652 points. The S&P was down by nearly 2% and the Nasdaq was off by 1.5%. Uh, it was bit of an ugly day, a bit of a surprise. But for the month of November, let's check things out. It was bad for the Dow. The Dow was down by 3.7% for the month. The S&P was down too, but it was only down by about eight-tenths of a percent. And then the NASDAQ actually closed higher by a quarter of 1%. And if you look at all of these averages, the Dow is just over 5% from its all-time high. The S&P and the NASDAQ are about 4% from their all-time highs. So you're not talking about huge moves, despite the red arrows that we've seen on a couple of days recently. Crude oil prices, the month was very difficult for crude oil prices. November saw the weakest levels for crude oil prices that we've seen since March of 2020. And remember what happened in March of 2020. That's when COVID first broke out. This morning indicated up by the... Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs will come to order. I'll introduce today's witnesses. We will hear from Treasury Secretary Yellen, Federal Reserve Chair Powell and their agencies continued actions to recover from the pandemic and build a resilient economy that works for all Americans. Thank you both for your service. Congratulations again to you, Chair Powell, and thank you for your testimony today. Chair Powell, you're recognized. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Chairman Brown, Ranking Member Toomey, and other members of the committee for the opportunity to testify today. The economy We're going to go talk to our to friend Steve Weisman with a look at the comments by Fed Chair Jay Powell that created global market turmoil yesterday. Steve. Morning, Andrew. Yeah, the main takeaway for investors from Fed Chair Powell's comments yesterday before Senate banking has to be it's now the default position of the Fed at its December meeting to discuss and likely enact a faster pace of taper. At this point, the economy is very strong and inflationary pressures are high and, and it is therefore appropriate, in my view, to consider wrapping up the taper of our asset purchases, which we actually announced at the November meeting, perhaps a few months sooner. And I expect that we will discuss that at, at our upcoming meeting in a couple of weeks. The turbo taper. In fact, J.P. Morgan writing this, it now looks like it will take a deterioration in the virus conditions to prevent the FOMC from deciding to quicken the pace of tapering 
at the next meeting. That's December 14th and 15th, of course. So now it's up to the new variant to prove it's bad enough to dissuade the Fed. Powell's comments came along with the Fed chair retiring the word transitory. I think the word transitory has different meanings to different people. To, to many, it carries a time, a sense of, uh, of short-lived. We, we tend to, 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 to ha- use it to mean that, that it won't leave a permanent mark uh, in, the, in the form of higher inflation. I think it's, it's probably a good time to retire that, that uh, word and try to explain more clearly what we mean. At this point, the economy is very strong and inflationary pressures are high, and, and it is therefore appropriate, in my view, to consider wrapping up the taper of our asset purchases, which we actually announced at the November meeting, perhaps a few months sooner. So what does this look like? Well, roughly every $5 billion increase in the taper announcement would bring forward the end of the Fed's $120 billion in monthly asset purchases, which are designed to help bring down interest rates. So if it doubled from the current pace of $15 billion to 30, the Fed would end the asset purchases around February with a little bit left over instead of May. I think that may be the odds-on choice here that the Fed doubles it. Now, faster taper, of course, raises the possibility of quicker rate hikes. But it's worth noting commodities, including oil, have all declined sharply. So both with the new virus scare and with Powell's comments. So it could be that a faster taper will do some of the heavy lifting and controlling inflation, limiting how fast rate hikes come or how far they have to go. Andrew? Were you surprised that he, he threw in the towel on the word transitory after all this time? No, no, I think he's been going there. That, that was not my surprise. My surprise was that he didn't wait a month before deciding uh, on the faster taper. I went back and looked at the transcript, Andrew. I want to find the exact words that he used. But he, he said at the last meeting, remember that last meeting was only in the beginning of November. He said, we're prepared, we prepared to speed up or slow down the pace. Speed up or slow down the pace of reductions in asset purchases if it's warranted by changes in the economic outlook. So you have to say, you know, what happened over this last 30 days that the Fed would would really uh, be on a course to change its policy, maybe even double the rate of tapering? You did have a strong inflation report uh, that showed wider inflation. But the question is, why didn't the Fed anticipate that? And then the Omicron thing came along and I thought, you know, the Fed is on a course to speed up the taper. I just didn't think it would happen so quickly. It's, uh, Steve, you remember some of the single words in the past that, that we got sick of? I, I, I mean, it's possible to just get sick of the same question uh, of a word. It's like you, you don't even have to have a huge shift in, in your viewpoint about inflation. It's just like if you ask me about transitory one more time, I'm going to come at You know, it's just like enough with the transitory. It still might be not as bad as people think, but just do not use... Tra- Thank then you, the other, Joe. The, yeah, then, that is exactly what I think it was. Conundrum, like, why did I what, ever utter that? You're so what, good. What is it? Conundrum was... Well, there was what? another one... That, and it was the... Conundrum was out there. Uh, that we just got sick of and said, just retire the freaking word. Jesus. It, it, um, you know, Joe, I'll be a little more... I'll, I'll be a little more... I'll be a little more clinical in response to your very, very funny comment there, which is this. I think that... A Fed chair uses a word when it helps him or her describe the outlook for policy. I think transitory became a liability for Powell politically in terms of his uh, response and even his sort of sensitivity to the issue of inflation. And it wasn't helping him explain to the markets where where policy was going and what it needed to do. The actual substantive thing that I was going to say, and you notice that I did the other thing first. But the substantive thing, perhaps, in my, right. in, my, in my mind anyway, was you throw all this into the mix. I read, the journal says part of a broad shift 
in the way he's viewing things. You add all that together, throw it in the blender, and we get a 149. I mean, that, that, that's what it we is get really for that. Re- on, it it is remarkable, Joe. That, all, that, all this hawkish talk and brings us to a 149. That's, that's the Omicron uh, but thing. It's, well, it's not just Omicron. Well, well let, me, let me just... Right. Go ahead, Steve. First of all, I just wanted to say, Joe, I, I applaud your idea of doing the fun stuff first in case you run out of time. And then, you we know, the like substance viewers. stuff, forget we about do like that. We do like viewers. We do, right, exactly. No, I agree. <laughs> I agree completely. Um, so so I was, what I was going to say is don't look to the 10-year. Look to the two-year. Look at the two-year this morning. Okay. It really is on the move. It's up to 60 basis points. And I have a, uh, what do you want to call it, A uh, uh, about a 50% probability of that rate hike coming in May. So that's where the action is. And what you've had is a compression. You've had uh, essentially a flattening of the curve. And, and that, ch- that tenure is saying, you know what? The Fed is probably going to deal with this inflation problem. That's what it's been saying, I think, in my opinion. You know, I was thinking about it this morning, though, too. Couldn't it be a situation where, hey, the Fed just said it's going to stop buying bonds, essentially? Like, by the way, it's been one of the biggest buyers in the market out there. If they say they're out of the business, okay, the good news is, you know, we're going to be looking towards this. They're going to be potentially raising rates sooner, but they're not going to be a buyer of the market. And I don't know what that means over the short term because they've been a biggie. But you would think, Becky, that would affect the longer term. I, I have long maintained that the Fed has less impact on that. I think the market is able to express its opinion of the outlook for inflation and growth despite the Fed buying. But you would think that the Fed coming off on the, on the, uh, uh, on, on the asset purchases would have a bigger effect on the longer end, but it's That's, not. But I, I just, um, and I should, go ahead. No, I was going to do something completely off topic just to uh, sort of follow Joe's theme and point out that I'll be playing this afternoon at the New York Stock Exchange Christmas lighting party. So I thought that was That's more cool. important than a discussion of the uh, the, the curve. Yeah, yeah. They're tapping the, the, the brakes, though. Go they ahead, are Joe. tapping the brakes, right? So, I mean, you could theoretically, with a brake tap, think that GDP or global... No, that's not part of why... I, and that is the perverse logic of the Fed when they finally do uh, decide. You know, when growth is so good that it causes them to maybe not be as accommodative, then they're not as accommodative, so that, that could affect growth. It's that warped, you know, uh, sort of circular argument. You don't think you know, so, though? To- to- totally agree. I mean, it, 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 well, it's not, it's not really, look at it, Joe. They're still, I haven't done the calculation um, uh, from my chart there of what it means. They're still going to be buying tens of billion dollars of assets all the way through February. They're still going to be at zero all the way through at least February or March. So there's going to be still a lot of accommodation out there. Just maybe not, and this is what I think investors have to understand, maybe not enough accommodation out there to justify some of the high asset prices in some of the most sort of far-flung assets that are out there. It's interesting to see commodities come off uh, and some of the other sort of assets that were maybe not central. And, and also, obviously, stocks. And you got to start to think about this. What are the right levels of stocks if the Fed gets back to, and I'm putting quotes around this, but a normal, a more right. normal interest rate? Does the, does the economy really well, need zero right now, given where the unemployment rate is, given that the growth forecast for the fourth quarter on the way up? They want me to move in. They're, they're, it, let's stay in the weeds, Steve, but move uh, you know, to molecular biology, uh, which is, you got to have that, that in your arsenal. Got to have it in your arsenal now to, to talk about the stock yep. market and, and everything else. An FDA advisory panel narrowly uh, endorsed the use of Merck's oral COVID treatment pill that we've been talking about, developed with Ridgeback, uh, at Atlanta uh, entity. The panel voted 13 to 10, 13 to 10, to recommend 
emergency authorization of molnupiravir. It's designed to treat adults with mild to moderate symptoms of COVID who could be at risk of a severe disease. The drug still needs final authorization from the FDA and the CDC before it be made available to the public on an emergency basis. Merck originally uh, said the drug was more than 50% effective in preventing hospitalizations and death, but a more robust data set presented to the FDA yesterday uh, said that the drug is just 30% effective. We talked with Dr. Len uh, Schleifer about this yesterday from Regeneron. This drug works by prompting the virus to mutate and produce errors, which inhibits it, its ability to, to replicate and spread. But mutate is the operative word. You would not give this to anyone who, who uh, was pregnant. Uh, it, the mutagenicity concerns are something that, that people point out for this drug. I think it's known as it's either a nucleotide or nucleoside analog. It's similar to what you would normally use, but it's different so that the replication gets disrupted. Different than the, the Pfizer drug, uh, which works on a, a different enzyme, a protease. But uh, some doctors do worry uh, that it could enable the virus to mutate in a way that makes vaccines and treatments less effective. So we got the, that to consider on the other end. We're going to talk more with Dr. Scott Gottlieb uh, about the Merck drug later. You know, there but, was some uh, confusion. 1310. Yeah, 1310 on the vote. But there was some confusion, I think, among doctors, too. Meg was tweeting everything that was happening in that FDA meeting yesterday. And doctors were responding to it, saying, we appreciate some guidance as to who we're supposed to give what and what's the best prepared treatment for each. I think there are so many new um, treatments that have come out and so many new ways of dealing things. It's, it's, it's all new and it's great and it's fantastic that science is doing this. But I think in the field, doctors are a little confused about what they're supposed to do when. The the, the Pfizer, um, the other one, the protease inhibitor, that's going to be up before a panel uh, pretty soon uh, as well. And I think there's some high hopes, maybe higher hopes, but it's got its own set of, uh, of on the other hand, we should get John Ford on this, uh, with the drug-drug interaction uh, for, the, for the Pfizer one. But now we know it's, it's really important, these therapeutics, with this crazy moving target uh, for how vaccines will respond. I mean, we, do we need an Omicron booster? We probably need an Omicron booster. Right. And, and then uh, yep. and, and we're, then, we're going to need a, and antivirals that can do it. Remdesivir will have to reformulate. Monoclonal yep. antibodies that are directed at, at this sequence. Crazy. Uh, that's why that's what I said. We, you, did you ever think I bet you guys wish you took some science courses back or maybe you did. But there are more science. We all did take some. Knew, yes. Who knew we were going to need this stuff to talk about um, the stock it's market? It's like a science course every day watching squash. It is. You read the post, you see the Tesla, the guy with the Tesla tattoo that got busted for a DUI. It's a face tattoo. For me, I wouldn't go above, you know, I'd stop here. At the, I like neck tattoos. Did you buy the Tesla whistle? Do you know about the Tesla whistle? I saw yeah. it. Uh, that I don't, tell me about that. There was, a, there was a $50 whistle that Elon Musk put on sale last night. You can't buy the whistle anymore. It's sold out. And now it's on eBay for five times the amount. No way. It's a whistle. Dog whistle? Is it? It's like a silver whistle. I it's literally yeah. like a physical whistle. It's supposed to. It's supposed to look. I. I think like one of the one of the cars. Uh, oh. has sort of a. Is it, it sort of has a Does cool. it have any function? Uh, form follows function. Is there any reason that you'd want to? Is You're supposed it to the... blow the whistle on Tesla. That's the. But I'm bum. Kind of oh, like just, the short shorts to, they to used show to. Your... That he used to, the shorts he used to no, sell no. for the shorts. If you want to show your support for Tesla, you go with the face tattoo. In my view, rather than just the way that's a lot. You're really much more committed, much more committed with, with that. Yeah, very elegant looking. 
Joe, you wear oh, it a tie like every day. It looks like the truck. It looks like the truck. It does look like the truck. You it's wear a tie every day for the same reason I wear pants every day. <laughs> okay. No tats on us. Next on Squawk Pod, a new variant, a newly approved therapeutic, three jabs, and a lot of science where we stand on COVID and the vaccines to fight it with Dr. Scott Gottlieb. There's a high degree of confidence that efficacy is going to be preserved here. Will it be the same 95%? Perhaps not, but you'll still have a meaningful amount of efficacy. We're not going to lose the vaccines. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Up track, stand by Joe. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Yeah, uh, we're more than halfway through the week. Um, and more than 11 twelfths of the way through the year. Well, that's not good. Uh, but being more, that's what's weird. I, I like the weeks to go quickly, but I don't want anything Months else to go quickly. Months of the years quickly. to go slowly, right. <laughs> Welcome back to CNBC uh, Squawk Box, uh, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. It's counter. Intuitive. Uh, I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. But at, at, at 8.30, we were halfway through. No, 7.30. At 7.30, we were halfway this through. This morning. Yes. The CDC saying last night that it plans to toughen COVID testing requirements uh, for international travelers coming to the United States. The new order would shorten the timeline uh, to one day before departure to the U.S., stricter uh, than the previous three-day policy for vaccinated travelers. Then uh, joining us now. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. He also serves on the boards of Illumina and, uh, and Pfizer. Uh, doctor, I, I saw some comments from the WHO. I don't know if we've mentioned them uh, yet. Actually, now I see we, the producers are sending them to, but I had already seen it. That, that at this point, it looks like some of the, uh, the Omicron cases, at least anecdotally, some of the early indications are that it might not be. Uh, any more virulent or that it could actually be somewhat mild? Have you seen uh, evidence pointing that way? Yeah, look, I saw this statement from the WHO official, and I've seen some of the anecdotal reporting out of various countries. Um, you know, that we, we have to remember, we've only diagnosed about 250 cases of this new variant at this point. There's a presumption that the growth in cases in South Africa is comprised of this Omicron variant. But the reality is that they were having a mini Delta surge. We don't know how brisk before this emerged. And they also had an uptick in a variant called C12, which was a, is a variant that's been bouncing around in South Africa for, Africa for quite some time that in recent weeks seems to have been increasing in prevalence. So we don't know whether or not the increased number of cases that they're seeing is this new variant. We also have to keep in mind 
that testing is way up in South Africa, and they're now counting antigen tests as positive tests in their daily totals. So people made a lot of the fact that cases went from around 2,500 to 4,000 over the last 24 hours. Well, testing went from 20,000 tests to over 40,000 tests, so the positivity rate actually went down. Um, right now, the current epi data is consistent with a very wide range of possibilities, so inferences are being drawn to try to fit to that data, and it's possible that the data is just wrong, and so the inferences that we're drawing to try to conform to the information that we're seeing themselves are wrong. Doctor, I, I'm not in the habit of, of reading medical journals anymore, like New England Journal of Medicine, but uh, Len Schleifer, the uh, CEO, Dr. Len Schleifer at, at Regeneron, sent me one yesterday about, uh, about immunosuppressed individuals Unfortunately, this this uh, individual uh, was had COVID for 156 days, and during that time, there were a myriad of uh, mutations within that individual. I mean, at something like 30, 40, 50 changes, and unfortunately, the in individual finally passed away. But almost like a, a an incubator for for variants. And uh, Dr. Schleifer thinks that instead of it being maybe person to person and mutating into a different variant, that it could be happening in immunosuppressed people. That's where some of the variants come from. And we need to, to, know, to realize that and address that. And I, the only way I could think about it would be through therapeutic uh, means, because a vaccine isn't going to help someone immunosuppressed, because their immune system won't re respond to the vaccine. Don't we need therapeutics to, to deal with this? We do. And Len's right. Um, the variants seem to arise in people who become chronically infected with this virus. And the people who become chronically infected are those who are immunocompromised and can't clear it. Um, you know, one thing we should be doing, in my view, and I think Len would agree with this, is be using prophylactically the monoclonal antibody drugs. People who are immunosuppressed, immunocompromised, should be getting those drugs on a regular basis as a prophylaxis to prevent themselves from getting infected. We know they're not going to respond well to the vaccines because they don't have a robust immune system. So we basically can give them an intact immune system in a bottle in the form of those monoclonal antibodies. With respect to the, some of the data around the idea that this emerged in an immunocompromised patient, what now appears to be the case, when we look at the, the mutation and the lineage of this particular variant, it actually first emerged over a year ago and then the trail go, goes cold, and then it reemerges very recently in the form of this outbreak of this new variant. It's possible that we're just picking up one cluster of this new variant, and this, this variant actually emerged some time ago. Maybe it was subclinical because it wasn't causing a lot of infection. Maybe it wasn't spreading that briskly, so we weren't detecting it. But it is very curious that the lineage of this variant goes cold for over a year. And the two theories being put forward to explain that is, one, maybe it was in an animal reservoir, so this variant went into an animal, mutated there, and then reemerged sometime later, or maybe it was in a chronically infected individual for a very extended length of time. Both could be true, but again, their theories being designed to fit a very incomplete data set at this point. Doctor, if the if the current boosters and the current vaccines aren't aren't going to be as effective against uh, this variant, and if we assume that there's going to be a, more variants in the future. If you vaccinate, uh, if you vaccinate everyone to the current variant, are we going to have to come back? And then if, if we want universal vaccination, won't we have to do that for every variant? If we don't help immunosuppressed people from generating variants, will it be effective to just vaccinate everyone if it's ineffective for, for the new variants? Look, 
we should be helping immunosuppressed people, and I think we should be using the monoclonal antibodies much more broadly. It's been it's a tragic mistake of this crisis that we haven't used those drugs more aggressively. Um, but variants are going to emerge. So far, the vaccines have demonstrated efficacy, significant efficacy against a whole range of variants. I mean, think of all the variants that have emerged and the vaccines still demonstrated efficacy. There's no reason to believe that we're going to lose them against this one. But eventually, we're going to have to migrate these vaccines, in my view. And that's one of the reasons why I think, at least for the foreseeable future, while prevalence is still high, this is likely to become an annual vaccine for a lot of the public. But the drugs should be used more aggressively. Becky Hunter, but I just want to follow up. Why would Bonsell say that this is really going to be bad and these things aren't going to work? Why, why would he go out and, and say that then if, if there's no reason to think that? It's, I'm hopeful that the vaccines work, too. But why would he go off? That's not a term I can use anymore. Why would he go out of the mainstream and say that um, if it if he didn't know that, or is he just talking to people, talking out of sort of not really in a position to talk that way? Well, look, I don't know what data he's looking at. I'm sure he's looking at some data that's that's giving him that indication. The people I talk to, and you noted at the top, I'm on the board of Pfizer, feel reasonably confident. I mean, there's no guarantee of anything, but feel reasonably confident that this vaccine is going to provide a meaningful amount of efficacy against this variant. And they're basing that on modeling and simulation and also their own expertise, that the third dose in particular, after you get the booster, you get a very broad antibody response. We said that at the time that that data was first announced. You could develop what, what we call polyclonal effect. And so there's a lot of antibodies that maybe aren't going to be so good at neutralizing this new variant, but there's a lot of antibodies that still seem to be preserved. And based on that, and prior experience with reductions in the efficacy of vaccines, observing the vaccine against other variants, there's a, there's a high degree of confidence that efficacy is going to be preserved here. Will it be the same 95%? Perhaps not, but you'll still have a meaningful amount of efficacy. We're not going to lose the vaccines. Yeah, Scott, the, Israel had some data that they're looking at that suggests the same. It's very early data, and I'm not sure where they're getting it, but it's suggesting the same thing. I just want to follow up very quickly on, on how you said we should be using these monoclonal antibodies more broadly and prophylactically for immunocompromised people. We asked Len about that yesterday. He said they've had their application to do just that before the FDA for six months and haven't heard back. With your understanding of the FDA, um, what do you think's happened there? Why hasn't it been approved? Yeah, I'm not sure, quite frankly, because a lot of the people who are vulnerable and immunocompromised have basically become prisoners in their home. They're, they're, they recognize their vulnerability and they're scared to go outside their homes. And this drug could be providing a measure of um, protection and confidence to allow many individuals to live um, a more normal life. There's about three million people in this country who are immunocompromised. All could be eligible to receive these drugs. There's certainly a cohort within that where I think it could be very important. If you're on active treatment for cancer, getting a monthly infusion of this drug could make eminent sense. I suspect the FDA is going to act on this application. I think it makes a lot of sense um, to have these drugs available prophylactically. They are being made available prophylactically. Regeneron is making them available under a compassionate use program, so a lot of patients are getting it. Um, but, you know, giving an EUA for that and that indication for this narrow use, I think, makes eminent clinical sense. Hey, doctor, I, I was just curious uh, on a very practical basis, since we've now heard about this variant, whether you are changing any of your own behavior or advising others to do so either in the workplace or otherwise. I know you're uh, triple or boosted, triple vaxxed, boosted. I am, too. I've been spending a lot of time now with other people who are vaccinated indoors and the like and whether that should change. And also, I know there's going to be a lot of people making travel plans around Christmas and beyond. There's a whole conference series and set. We were talking about Davos and other things. How, what are you telling people they should be doing? 
Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not changing anything. It's, it's a foregone conclusion that this is here. I mean, looking at how this is in ver various other countries, I think it's inevitable that we're going to find a case here in the United States. That doesn't mean that is spreading at any appreciable level. And I'm not convinced yet that this new variant is more contagious, more virulent, um, and is spreading more aggressively than Delta, or that it's going to outcompete Delta based on the very limited epi data that we're getting out of South Africa at this point. So I don't know that this is going to race around a major city if we do find an individual case or a cluster of cases. In terms of international travel, my concern around traveling internationally wouldn't be coming into contact with this new variant and being infected by it based on what I know now. Um, I'm not more fearful of this variant than I am of any COVID variant. My, my concern would be getting stuck outside the country. Either you get COVID while you're traveling, unfortunately, even a mild case or an asymptomatic case, and you can't get back inside the U.S. or you get stuck in some kind of quarantine situation. So I'd be very mindful that if you're going to leave the country, have a plan B. Um, be prepared to you know, stay there or get in touch with medical personnel if, in fact, you do get stuck. So cold in Davos. Um... <laughs> Hey, so, all right, last, last, don't tell me that. Uh, pizza, pizza, three meals a day for, for uh, doctor, that, 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 uh, that's my own problem. Uh, let me f finish with this. So you saw some of this stuff with uh, federal judges and courts and health care mandates, and there's some setbacks that, uh, that we saw yesterday. Your current thinking on the most effective way to get everyone in this country vaccinated. Start on one side with its personal freedom, it's someone's choice, all the way to a universal vaccine mandate uh, that the military uh, is involved with. Where, where, where do you think we should um, try to get the most, what, what should our efforts be focused on to get everyone vaccinated in this country? Yeah, look, I think that there's probably 10 percent of Americans that are going to fight vaccination regardless of what policies you implement. And we just need to accept that. Most of them have already had COVID and the ones who haven't will. Um, we need to focus on the other 85, 90 percent. And that means getting people boosted who've already had a vaccine. I think we need to do more to try to get more children vaccinated as well. So I think we need to shift our focus. And instead of trying to implement more mandates that I think is at this point counterproductive, just focus on the people who want to protect themselves with a the vaccine, except that the people who aren't very small number of Americans uh, had COVID or will get it and they'll have some immunity from that and focus on getting Americans boosted. About 83% of adults have had a dose of vaccine. 85% will. We'll get to 85% quite easily, I think. And that's a, that's a significant number. The other thing I would say is we have to look at immunity in terms of the total immunity of the population. And it's true that we have a lower vaccination rate than other countries, but we've also had a lot more infection. So when you combine the immunity induced by infection and the immunity induced by vaccine, we have a lot of total immunity in, in our population relative to other countries, maybe, se maybe second only to the UK, which also had a lot of spread and also has dis, um, distributed a lot of vaccines. So that is a factor here. We've had people who've been infected, people who've been infected and vaccinated, and then we've had people who have just been vaccinated. Yeah, very, very quick question. Our definition of vaccinated at this point is anybody who's gotten one shot of J&J, &J, two shots of the other two, shot, two things. Um, if you're more than six months out, what, what happens? Are you still considered vaccinated? Should we change our definition? That means you have to be boosted, to, boosted as well. Yeah, they're not going to change the definition um, for the foreseeable future, because I think there's a lot of policy tied around the definition of what it means to be fully vaccinated. But I think for most Americans now, especially viewing these new variants that are emerging, um, when they make sort of an individual judgment about what it means to be fully vaccinated, I think it's going to include a booster, especially, you know, if you're more than, well more than six months out from your original vaccine and you're an older American who's more vulnerable. All right, uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Uh 
Thank you. I didn't get to talk to you about Merck. Um, I, that's not uh, the. F- of course, then we, you know, then I'd be asking you about Pfizer, and you're on the board of Pfizer, and I, I, I don't need it today. Uh, anyway, um, thank you, and uh, great, great to have you on. Uh, by the way, he's on the board of Pfizer. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, quantifying climate impact. Former White House Budget Chief Peter Orzag on a new focus at Lazard. We are releasing the most comprehensive analysis to date of how equity markets respond to greenhouse gas emissions. The higher your emissions, the lower your stock multiple. That and more right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. This is Squawk Pod. Today with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew. Joining us to talk about inflation, the markets, and his latest venture on climate change is Peter Orzag, CEO of Lazard's financial advisory business. Peter, it's great to see you this morning. I'm curious, I'm sure you've been watching these hearings, and if you could put your Washington hat back on, I know you've, you've, you've probably uh, been happy not to be there. Tried but to ditch that, but sure. Back, yeah, that's okay. Yep. Back on. Uh, what did you make of what Jay Powell said yesterday? And is he late at this point? So let me let me be a, a bit of an outlier. I actually think Jay Powell is doing a great job. And the reason I think he's doing a great job is that he's waiting to see incoming evidence, trying to this transition from a very, very expansionary monetary policy to sort of a more normalized one is a very hard thing to pull off. And it's right for him to be responding to incoming data. So I think we need to put things in context. First, you know, moving the beginning of the taper by a few months is not uh, a few years, it's a few months. Uh, it seems appropriate to me, but it is a few months. And the second thing that I think has been lost in all of this is his and the Fed's uh, staff estimates for inflation in 2022, sort of where we're gonna wind up uh, next year, hasn't really moved that much. And so I think it's good that he dropped the transitory term because that was confusing. No one knew what it meant or how, you know, how long, what, what does it mean? But in terms of what he's expecting for 2022, he's still around 2%, which is much lower than most of the uh, you know, media hoopla would suggest. Uh, you also have played uh, the role of healthcare banker. And so as we try to think about this variant and also think about the markets, I'm curious about how you're thinking about how they intersect right now. Well, they clearly uh, intersect. The market is uh, responding to a lot of uncertainty about Omicron. And look, I think this is unfortunately pretty simple, which is until the world is vaccinated, the virus has the opportunity to mutate and evolve. 
And there's always the risk, let's hope it's not the case with regard to Omicron, we don't know yet, but there's always the possibility that uh, because it's brewing in uh, a largely unvaccinated area of the world, that it comes back to bite the more vaccinated areas of the world. And that's the fundamental problem with not vaccinating the whole globe. That's point one. Point two is, let's not forget the massive advances and the really exciting news on antiviral pills. If we can get more of the world vaccinated and we can get the antiviral uh, pills that look so promising, or at least uh, uh, one of them does, uh, approved and into use, I think the market will, uh, you know, not, not have as much to fear from this virus. Peter, but the question I'd ask you is, we, we live in a country where, where there are no vaccine mandates, as you know, the, the, the president, President Biden, trying to pursue that for, for companies that have over 100 employees, uh, losing, by the way, at least at the moment, uh, in court, um, the idea we can't even do this here. I don't know if you saw Jim Cramer last night. He was trending on Twitter saying we should have a, a government mandate across the board. The military should do it and everybody in, in the U.S. should be uh, mandated. But if we can't even do this here, how can we ever expect to do this across the globe? Well, I think the, 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 the issues are much different here and in a lot of the developing world. Uh, there, it, it still is access and supply that is at least part of the problem here, as you point out. That is not the issue. Uh, we, we live in a highly polarized political environment, and it's really sad and unfortunate that this issue um, has become so polarized because it, it really shouldn't have been. And it's unfortunate, I think, both for uh, us as you know, collectively and for individuals who too late realize that they should have gotten vaccinated because they get infected and realize they made a mistake. You've always uh, been someone who, who's thought about financial incentives, especially around health care. Do you have any thoughts about how, how you'd solve this one? There are lots of possibilities. I don't think the fundamental issue and various states have tried, uh, you know, uh, payments for uh, getting vaccinated. I think uh, what we're pointing to, at least in the U.S., and again, this is different than in the developing world, is a world in which um, if an issue gets polarized and it becomes um, almost more of a cultural thing, uh, there's no amount of money really that can solve that. So yes, maybe there, there occasionally can be situations in which paying someone to get vaccinated or penalizing them for not getting vaccinated works. Uh, it does appear that, for example, that uh, requiring a vaccine uh, to, in order to, to to get into movie theaters and restaurants, that has some effects, so that's a form of an incentive. Um, but I think fundamentally this is, at least in the U.S., more of a cultural issue. Um, and then I wanted to ask you about uh, your day today, because I know you're, you're putting on a, yes, a conference. Yes, that's what I really and, wanted uh, to talk about. <laughs> right, and creating a, a hub around climate. Explain what you're doing. So we're, uh, Lazard's starting a new climate center. That's not that interesting because everyone's starting a climate center. But what's different about ours is it's very focused on corporate finance. What is the implication of both uh, the business as usual path and what we might do to try to alter that path on companies' cost of capital, on their uh, you know, on market reaction to M&A transactions, on things that uh, in boardrooms and C-suites we're getting asked all the time. There is a remarkable lack of evidence on many of these issues. So this morning, for example, we are releasing the most comprehensive analysis to date of how equity markets respond to greenhouse gas emissions. And the short answer is that that, is, that carbon discount is being priced in already. Uh, so the higher your emissions, the lower your stock multiple, all else equal. Uh, that carbon discount varies significantly across market caps and sectors. 
So if you're a large cap uh, company in energy or industrials, uh, the, that carbon discount, that is how much your multiple comes down as your emissions go up, is much larger than for smaller companies in other sectors. Uh, and there will be more such research coming from us in the years to come. And, and so the, the, the question, though, I was going to ask you, because you advise a lot of companies on M&A, how often do you sit around in a boardroom and say, well, we're thinking of buying this company, but you know what? The ESG profile of this company is not that great. Maybe we don't want to buy it. I mean, and I'm not talking about this in the context of energy companies, I'm, because, because I could see in that context, people say, I don't, I don't want to, I want to actually sell a lot of this stuff. But in the broader context. Yeah, it, it, well, it varies, obviously. So as you noted in energy, obviously, it does come up a lot. In industrials, it will come up. It varies across the, the sectors. And I think we're going to, in fact, we're going, one of the next things we're going to be analyzing is, uh, you can imagine, we're all used to accretive and dilutive deals, uh, depending on the earnings per share of the, the target and the acquirer. You can now think of carbon accretive and carbon dilutive deals. So is the emissions per dollar of revenue or, or per dollar of earnings higher or lower at the target relative to the acquirer? And does the market respond differently to that? So that's one of the next things that we are going to be putting out early next year as a comprehensive analysis of that question. But the short answer to your question is it does come up. It varies from sector to sector. And also, frankly, it varies depending on uh, the market cap of the company, too, which kind of corresponds to the equity value findings that we're releasing today. Okay, Peter Orzag, it's fascinating work and uh, we look forward to following it all. Thanks. That is Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern for the latest business news, conversations, and sophisticated linguistics. We just got sick of and said, just retire the freaking word, Jesus. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Share this podcast with a friend, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.